Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Ruan Brell, a medical legal solicitor. In her previous podcast with us, we focused on how clinics and medical professionals can protect themselves. In today's episode, we focus on the patient perspective and we discuss what they should do if their consultation or treatment doesn't go as planned. Hello again, Rowan. Thank you for coming back for sort of episode two of Medical Legal Nightmares. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Nightmares. Nice. Um, so in our first episode review, we, we, I guess we were talking more from a doctor or medical professional perspective of how they can practice in a safe and, you know, medically legally sound way. Maybe we sort of do a little spin and think from the patient perspective in this mm-hmm. episode, if that's okay. Yep. So I guess... Well, would you agree with this, that there, there is an increase in sort of patients just, you know, claiming or trying to sue? Do you think that culture is real? Like, you know, we, we always think that Australia is turning more like America where everyone's getting very litigious. Is that real or is it just um, a perception? I'd probably say probably maybe 15 years ago there was starting to be an increase in, in suing, in, in claiming litigation. That's tailed off a little bit. Um Tort law reform had something to do with that, which I won't go into in any detail, but, you know, laws change to make that a little bit harder or a bit more robust, the legal system. Certainly one of the outcomes of that and generally is that complaints are increasing and patients are getting a little bit more savvy and a bit more aware of their options. Mm. So I would say that patients' um, awareness of the fact that they don't, that doctor doesn't always know best is changing and so the complaints mechanisms, be it actual formal complaints to the regulator or raising concerns directly with the practice or uh, online reviews are becoming more common. Okay, fair enough. Um, Do you think that part of the... Well, I guess we in, in the first episode, we established that communication is key, right? Um, if you've had something that you know or perceive has gone wrong, the first thing you should do is go back to your healthcare provider and, and try and seek a resolution to, you know, to get back to a better place or to get a better <coughs> outcome. Um, I can't help but think that even the way that our society is going and people are becoming more and more comfortable with like communicating through text messages and emails, this whole, you know, like what we're doing right now, having a face-to-face conversation, mm. it seems like that art is perhaps being lost yep. um, and that people now don't feel comfortable having that confrontation with their medical professional or their doctor or their nurse because they just, they're not, I guess, as comfortable having these face-to-face confrontational conversations or it doesn't even have to be confrontational, but it, it is a situation where a lot of people don't feel comfortable. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I mean, in some ways, the value of uh, the, the doctor-patient relationship, doctor-client relationship is that that has to be a face-to-face one. Yeah. To be able to treat, administer an injection, perform surgery, obviously that is naturally a face-to-face consultation. Um, maybe the fact that people aren't doing it in other uh, areas of their lives mean that 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 is becoming sort of less routine and less uh, less a comfortable space. That's why it's really important, I'd say, at the start of establishing a treating relationship with someone. So, or a start as being becoming someone's patient or someone's client, that you make sure that you're comfortable in that setting. Um, and that's about patients feeling 
empowered to ask questions of their doctor, to ask questions about a procedure to the nurse, um, establish an, a, a, a relationship even and a good rapport with the practice as an entity. Um, I mean, even in the GP setting now, you know, patients increasingly may not see the one doctor all the time. Um, GPs are becoming more corporatized, so there may be a relationship that you actually have with that organization as a whole. There might be two or three different doctors. So the same goes for any sort of healthcare you're accessing. It's quite personal. You naturally are putting yourself in a situation. And that's one of the reasons why there is regulation and laws that cover it because we naturally assume that as the patient in that situation, you are more vulnerable than the doctor. And so all these things are put into place to protect the interests of the patient. And I would like to think that patients feel empowered by that. And so, and as the increasing awareness becomes of complaints mechanisms, but also of the patient's role and that shared decision-making. You don't just go to your doctor or your health practitioner and they tell you what's going to happen. You go there with questions, you go there with a request and you talk about it. And if you're not comfortable after doing that, you shouldn't go ahead just like the doctor shouldn't go ahead if they're not comfortable. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, we as injectors always told, if you've got a a sixth sense that things aren't quite right you don't treat and I think that goes for the patient too Mm. if you've got a sixth sense that you're not fully understanding or you just don't have a chemistry with your doctor Mm. just go away and think about it or get a second opinion absolutely absolutely and and also even before you go away and get a second second opinion say I'm not comfortable about that or actually I wanted to ask you x and raise it even even beforehand. Or if you think I might like to get a second opinion, say, do you mind if I get a second opinion? Do you have a colleague who also knows about this who I could chat to? Yeah. Um, and sometimes the best way you can help that particular person is send them to someone else, mm. either because you haven't got good rapport, you might be well and truly able to do what they're asking you to do, but the rapport's not there. And on both sides, if there are red flags or concerns at the start, they're not likely to go away. Mm. Perfect. Would you agree that people's expectations are higher now? Absolutely. Than they used to be. Absolutely. We're all striving for perfection. We see people on social media and looking amazing and filtered up to the eyeballs. And, <laughs> you know, so we've got these, you know, everyone feels like they have to look a certain way or, you know, the level of perfection that people are trying to seek is almost getting to a point where it's unattainable. So my, my, I, I kind of feel sorry for um, doctors and nurses these days because they're almost trying to do the impossible, which is to make people look perfect, which is impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought you were going to ask about sort of people's expectations generally in terms of what they get from healthcare, but outcome expectations are huge. And that's where we go back to what we were talking yeah. about in the last episode about managing those expectations and trying to understand what they are before you try and offer treatment to achieve them. Yeah. And also from a patient's point of view, if you want to look a certain way based on what you've seen out there in the media, actually talk to your doctor directly about that and say, yeah. maybe your first question is, is this achievable? Or I really want X or I'm I'm concerned about this part of my body or I want this fixed or I really want to look like her, you know, be, be open and be honest about what you're trying to achieve because if that's not possible, you, you need to know that before yeah. you start going down that path. Yeah. We did a, um episode with an ENT surgeon who I think he gave a talk on how the selfie has changed his practice, mm. the way that he approaches rhinoplasties or, or nose surgery. Um how much, you know, people taking photos of themselves from all these weird obscure angles under like every conceivable light um, source known to mankind. And people are like seeing themselves from angles that they didn't know. They didn't Mm. like, it's, 
people's awareness of what they look like and, and what they think they should look like is is changing. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's that's why it's really important to know what that perception is yeah. before you try and treat that patient. Um, and also from a patient's point of view, understand and, and vocalise what your perception of yourself is yeah. um, and what you're trying to check. Yeah. So from a consumer's perspective, I guess it would be good advice to not only um, vet the clinical skills and experience of the person that you're going out to see, but to also make sure that you are able to establish rapport with this person, that you feel that they understand what it is you're trying to achieve. And maybe you don't get that with the first person that you meet. Maybe you need to go and see two, need to go and see two three, four people yeah. um, before you find someone, because you might have all these people that have, you know, same level of training, same level of expertise, they can achieve a similar outcome but maybe you feel this one person understands you, you get them, you you develop that rapport and you're confident that they're going to be able to deliver what, what you want to achieve. Absolutely. And that rapport might be the difference between you asking that one extra question or not so that you know which of two possible treatment options you might be pursuing. Yeah. Or it might be the difference between wanting to wait a little while before you go and do something or maybe seeing another different sort of practitioner and maybe fixing some self-esteem issues up before yeah. you actually pursue, you know, more sort of treatment yeah. as such. Yeah. I had a, um, a consult with a, with a plastic surgeon a number of years ago. And I remember that I know that the, the one thing that he said to me that made me go, this is the guy that I want to see was he said, at the end of this consultation, if you decide that surgery is not for you, then I feel like I've done my job. Mm, and I absolutely. was like, wow, that's really, you know, that was really impressive. Like he wasn't trying to sell me. He wasn't just hungry for the money. He actually said, you know, after hearing everything that I've had to explain to you and you've weighed up the risk, if you decide it's not for you, then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a really good way of looking at it. And and I think also people come to a, to a consultation with a nurse, doctor, whoever, with a very, very fixed view sometimes of why they're there. And that's why sometimes, and particularly, you know, if someone's referred to you, so you've already got some information before you see them, that's, so everyone's going into that with quite preconceived notions of why that consultation is happening or why those two people in a room talking about something. And that's why sometimes the first thing that you can do either as a doctor is to try and understand what are you here for today? Why did you want to come and see me? Or for the patient to say, to be really open about why they're, why they're there and what their particular outcome is rather than maybe requesting a particular treatment or a particular procedure, talking more about their outcome uh, and, and making sure that they're comfortable being as open and as vulnerable with that person as they need to be. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you're a patient and unfortunately you're the victim of what you perceive to be malpractice, uh, a serious side effect or something, and you obviously do the common things like go back and tell them and show them and and you're still sort of palmed off, what are your tools available available to you as the patient then? What do you do next? Yeah, so depending, again, really, then it comes down to outcome. Do you, some people say, I've decided to make a complaint because I don't want this to happen to anyone else. Um, And if that's your view, you may be looking at something more like a regulatory complaint. So a complaint to APRA, Dr. X did this, I'm not happy and I'm concerned that they pose a risk to the public Hmm. or Dr. X did Y and um, I now have to, I haven't been able to work and I am seeing a counsellor and so actually that's costing me money. So I want someone to pay for that. Hmm. So depending on what outcome you're worried about, that's going to determine whether or not you want to make a complaint or whether or not you want to 
make a legal claim for money. What about these uh, bodies like Obensman and uh, Complaints Commission and what do they do? Yep. So the Healthcare Complaints Commission in New South Wales is the complaints arm of APRA. In each state, it's a little bit different. So in Queensland, it's the Ombudsman. Um, So APRA is the overarching national organisation and then in each of the different states, the complaint sometimes will be managed by APRA or will be sometimes managed by the Complaints Commission or the Ombudsman. Um, So the main thing is if you're a patient and you really do want – you've tried to explore it with the practitioner or the doctor in the first instance and you don't feel like you've got anywhere and you want to make a formal complaint or complain to the regular regulator, then APRA is your first point of call. And then if you're in New South Wales, it'll go to the Healthcare Complaints Commission. If you're in other states, it'll go to those relevant bodies. Okay. And what about trading standards? When do they get involved or why should a patient go to them? Um, so that's more issues, I, I suppose, about things like the Department of Fair Trading in terms of the, the sorts of things under their purview. So that won't necessarily be about, I feel like someone has negligently performed my operation. That's not something that they would necessarily get involved in. Mm-hmm. That might be more about your advertising or the way that you might have practised as such in, in a administrative sense. Like a commercial aspect rather than a medical aspect. Yep. Right. In in summary, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, advice for patients, consumers going in to have a consultation or explore the possibility of undergoing a treatment or procedure. What should patients be doing to prepare themselves for this consultation process? What mindset should they be going in there with? Should they be walking in with questions? What If you had to give advice to, to a client or I guess a child, like one of your children, like, what, what would you be saying to people to, to make yeah. sure they're doing it the right way? So ultimately, again, it's it's come to why are you there? So you know what are you what are you going to see that practitioner about? Absolutely, if you have questions, so know a little bit about uh, what you what are you wanting to achieve or why you're there. A little bit about who you're going to see. So not necessarily the individual, but the sorts of services that they can provide. I suppose if you've been referred to someone, you may have a lot of information in the first instance about I'm going to see a surgeon because I want this particular procedure. Um, again, it's still probably better to make sure that you go in there and talk about, I'm particularly concerned about this part of me and I would like to look like this or fix this um, so that you're giving a little bit of information and absolutely go in there, certainly go in there from a mindset point of view with as open a mindset as you possibly can um, so that you can ask questions and actually be open to hearing the answers to those questions Um, rather than going in there and saying, um, I want a rhinoplasty and I want it tomorrow and I want to look like this picture that I've got on my phone. That's not going to make for a particularly effective conversation. Or if you do go in with that as your starting position, actually hear what's said back to you. Um, Well, actually, these are the things that we will need to do before we can consider whether or not that's something that we can provide. Um, You're never going to be able to look like that for these reasons. What are you particularly concerned about? And actually provide information and be prepared to provide information and be honest with the practitioner that you're talking to. Um, Perhaps things like uh, having prepared questions beforehand because I guess sometimes when you're in a consult, you might forget 
you might be intimidated, you might be excited, yeah. things might slip your mind. So maybe having questions prepared yeah. before and, and not be afraid to say, yeah. I've got some questions yeah. that I wrote down or look on the bus on the way here, I type some questions into my phone. Do you mind if I pull out my phone and just check that I've asked everything that I wanted to ask you? Um, or you might even go in there with, with something written down on a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, you know, it might be that you've been thinking about this for a really long time. And so you wrote down some dot points, you wrote down a list of your medications. You wrote down a list of the history of other surgeries you've had or other procedures you've had because you weren't sure that you were going to remember everything when you got into that room. So certainly prepare and be open and honest. Yeah. I guess from uh, Jake, you can probably speak to this from a you know, medical professional, someone providing treatments. If you've got a patient that comes in with prepared questions, you're thinking to yourself, well, this person's actually taking this seriously. Um, you know, they know what they want to ask. This is not just a, you know, a, a, a spur of the moment decision. They're actually taking this yeah. seriously and they've thought about it. I, I think or does it of, scare you? Well, I, yeah, I think a lot of practitioners will take that both ways. They'll like the fact that their, their patient's engaged, informed, they've done a bit of research on Google or, or, or however they've done it. But alternatively, you may think, okay, this person's pretty officious and there's a, you know they've gone to the sort of step of writing all these questions. Are they a litigious person? Per, per, uh, yeah. You know, hmm. perhaps, you know, you, there are some red flags yeah. that, I, that hmm. I would be thinking hmm. of, but at the same time, I appreciate the fact that they've, <laughs> you know, brought some questions that are relevant. Again, that's going to come down to patient selection and practitioner selection as well, because there might be some doctors who would love a patient to come in with prepared questions based on, their personality or the sorts of procedures that they offer. Yeah. Equally, the fact that they've come in with prepared questions might exactly be the way of exposing those red flags or those alarm bells so that you know right from the start that that's not a patient that you want to treat. A patient that comes in and says, I've had three previous procedures, I've not been happy with any <laughs> of them, and now I want you to do X yeah. might be exactly the sort of person who's saying, okay, well, I actually am not going to be able to give you that outcome or meet that need for you. I don't think I'm the right person for you. Yeah. Um, and you should always, on both sides, practitioner and patient, feel empowered to decline to pursue that treating relationship. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually had a, a client just this week and I thought it was really good. She, you know, she's moved around countries, etc. but she's got like a little file, like a paper file. She's a little bit older, but she's got everything written down, exactly what she had done, what product, where it went. I thought that's awesome. Mm, like mm. that, you know, what went in your face and I can interpret that. And that was great. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just, I guess how it's done. Mm. If, Absolutely. Some, if someone, you know, I've been in the situation both in hospital and in the cosmetic field where this sort of file gets opened up almost like a, a case <laughs> inquisition <laughs> like a bit of an inquisition you're like okay I'm prepared for a battle before this even started yeah, yeah. whereas if they're just like oh I was just writing on the back of the newspaper well that's yeah, different yeah. you know that's just a casual checklist of questions that they wanted to ask you you raised a really good point about um, people that have had previous treatments especially when it comes to injectables where someone might have had a certain product injected six months ago then um, they you know we live in a world where people travel around they go on holidays they move countries, whatever, they're traveling for work and they go and see another healthcare professional somewhere else. It's really important, I guess, talking to consumers that they keep a record of what they actually have done so they can actually provide accurate information to the next healthcare provider because that might change 
the way they approach it. It might mean they use a different product. There might be things that you don't understand about how certain drugs or products interact with each other. Um, so I think you know consumers also need to understand the onus is on them somewhat too to make sure they're forthcoming and, and, and being diligent with understanding what they've actually had done. It's, it's their body. They need to take some responsibility too. Absolutely. And that's where preparation you know, from the, from the patient side becomes really important. So the preparation might be thinking about what you want, but it also might be speaking to your family or previous doctors about the other 10 things or the last 10 years of your treatment um, and then being able to provide that information. Mm. Um, and, and absolutely, again, you know, coming down to then having that information so that when you're asked questions mm. that are relevant, you have the information to pass on to the practitioner. Yeah. yeah. So, Rowan, um, one of the most requested things that we had from our listeners because we put out a poll last night of what to ask the solicitor is um, the advertising laws, particularly surrounding injectables, but I guess you can talk in generalities. So, so I guess to um, give our listeners who maybe aren't even in Australia some sort of uh, idea of what we're talking about, what what are our restrictions as yep. doctors and practitioners in Australia? Yep. Um, so from an advertising point of view, um, all health practitioners and anyone advertising a health service, so I stress anyone advertising a health service um, are bound to comply with the advertising regulations. Um, so there's a section, there's a, there's a statutory section, and then those are also supplemented by guidelines that then explain what you can and can't do. So APRA, uh, the, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, have come out with some guidelines that are actually currently about to be updated and hopefully released in the next couple of months in a new format. Um, but they basically go through and try and give some information about what you what practitioners can and can't do or what health services can and can't advertise. Yeah. And then separately from that, there are requirements from the Therapeutic Goods Administration about what you can and can't advertise when it comes to uh, product names, uh, drug names, etc. Um, so sometimes, particularly from a cosmetic space, we focus on the TGA requirements, but uh, the APRA guidelines and the um, laws and regulations from their point of view are much, much broader. Uh, so I can go into just briefly what those cover. Can I just pick you up? The word guideline. Yeah. Is that a loose, uh, you know, does that mean it's not black and white? No. So um, so there's a, uh, there's a law that says what you can and can't do. And then there are guidelines, which is just a section of the legislation, section 133 of the national law. And then there are guidelines to help practitioners and practices and health services understand what that means. Okay. So it is a law. Um, there is a penalty that attaches if you breach it. Yes. Um, and then subject to how or what you are doing, um, you there may be, you know, greater consequences. So some of them may also come into issues about professional conduct. Yeah. Um, but the concept is there is a law that says as a health service, you cannot. And the things that you can't do, uh, you can't... Um, Whoops. <laughs> And overboard. <laughs> just, just dropped, dropped a few papers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you can't be false, me false misleading or deceptive yeah. or possibly be or likely to be so. Um, you can't offer any gifts or inducements without stating the terms and conditions of that offer clearly. Can you just give two simple examples of what you mean or one example? Uh, yeah. So, um, so false and misleading is really broad and we could talk about that for hours and hours, but it, those are probably common terms that we're all familiar with and apply to all advertising. Um, 
Offers or inducements without stating the terms of conditions of that offer are things like offering things that are free where there is a a, a rider to that. So a free treatment where actually the rider is that it's not available to existing clients or patients, for example. That's a common one. Um, Just in terms of examples, one thing APRA have done, which is really great, is they've got a whole page on their website of advertising resources and they have examples about each one of these things and each and examples for particular practitioners. Mm. So if you are advertising and if you haven't already looked at them, that is absolutely the first place that I would suggest that you do. I was going to say, do you find that a lot of the complaints that come to you, uh, the reason why it's happened is because your uh, doctor or nurse Sorry, I know you don't do nurses. Your doctor hasn't actually read the guidelines in the first place? Yes. Um, That would – certainly sometimes they haven't. Um, Some people aren't aren't aware that there are laws about advertising. Some people are aware but have sort of interpreted them or a colleague has told them that they can do a certain thing or they've seen a colleague do something and they know that it's wrong but then they think it's okay because everyone else is doing it. Well, this is – you know, um, from my perspective, I, you know, I get questions from colleagues and nurses saying, hey, I've seen so-and-so do this on Instagram, therefore I'm going to do it. And I'm like, no. Just, yes. And I send them a link to the guidelines yeah. and, then, and then they still do it because they, they see everyone else doing it. And <laughs> essentially the only response to that is just because everyone else is doing it yeah. doesn't make what you're doing it's okay. If you get pulled over by the police for speeding and your response is, well, the person in front of me was also speeding. Try that and see how it goes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and it's important to remember that the reason for the TGA uh, prohibitions in relation to advertising and also APRAs, are, it's about public safety and the, it's specifically stated in the guidelines uh, which explain the advertising laws that the reason behind the advertising laws is about protecting the public. But. So I'm going to challenge that a little bit. And I know it's not your job to defend uh, the TGA or the APRA <laughs> guidelines, so don't take this personally. Um, but is that really protecting patients? I mean, is there a difference between advertising anti-wrinkle injections for X amount of dollars versus actually specifying what the actual product is that patient will be receiving? Because to me, it, from a consumer's perspective, I'm not a, I'm not a healthcare professional, I would see that as more confusing because... People understand. People aren't stupid. They can go anti-wrinkle injection. I know what that is, right? But wouldn't it be much better to just be open and honest about exactly what it is we're talking about? Because you can still find loopholes and you can find clever ways to do things. All we're doing now, really, is pe- playing pe- a game. Pe- people are playing games. They're they're you know they're playing with semantics. They're you know they're seeing if they can get away with it. They're not they're not a big player yet, so they're not on anyone's radar. Because generally, the people that get attacked are the people that create the biggest the biggest waves or affecting people's bottom line a lot and then they get dobbed in by their competitors or rivals. Um, But it seems like the consumers are the ones that are actually missing out because they're not getting clear information about what it is that they're trying to research. Well, so the challenge is that in in providing or in introducing laws that are going to protect the public as a, and obviously the public is everyone. So you're going to act absolutely have really informed, engaged consumers, but you're also going to have people that might be considering something for the first time. So the idea is you're protecting everyone within that spectrum and you need to start from a particular place to make sure those people are protected. In some ways, it's not grey because the TGA in particular have come out with actually a list of recommended terms. And the idea is that even if you think that it might be grey or confusing, if you're complying with that, 
at least you can say, this is what we're doing. And what you're doing is you're advertising, you're providing information to a patient with the expectation that they still have to come to you and talk about that. And at that point in time, you can talk to them about the different brands that may be able to deliver that for them or the different specific named treatments. Um, The same with the APRA guidelines. The issue is that lots of patients might take things at face value. And as a practitioner, you're much more used to dealing with services because it's something that you do every day. But for that one patient who has never thought about this before and sees your ad, you need to make sure that certain steps have been taken so that their interests are as best protected as possible. Now, sometimes it may feel like that might be going one steps too far or some other people might say actually there's not enough regulation so the idea is finding a middle ground yeah. keeping in mind that what we're trying to do is regulate for all health services that are being advertised and all practitioners in all different sorts of specialties across Australia so keeping that in mind regulation is always a challenge the idea and what we do is basically just try and demystify that and explain it and that's where uh you know, advice that we can provide to our members is useful, but also APRA have tried to add and constantly update their resources so that practitioners can go on there and practices can go on there to say, I'm thinking about doing this, is that okay? And make their own decisions. Yeah. Because yeah. I guess we don't want to fall into a situation where we become like, and no offence to any of our United States listeners, we love you, um, <laughs> that, um, you know, they can advertise antipsychotics on TV, mm. antidepressants. I mean, you can basically advertise anything and you're hearing ads like, this may kill you, this may cause you to have suicidal thoughts. And they're advertising it on primetime TV. So I guess we don't want to get there. No. But it seems like where we're at at the moment is also not ideal. We, it seems like maybe somewhere in between might be a sensible place to end up that I don't know. <laughs> and I think the challenge is that, I mean, even since 2014 when the first um, version of the guidelines came out, uh, even since that time, the platforms on which you can identify, uh, which you can advertise have changed so much. Um, The way people want to advertise, consumers' expectations about what sort of information they're going to be able to access before they go and see someone face-to-face have changed. And so it's really about, again, providing guidance about how you can do that within the law and then some examples so that even if you feel as a practice or a practitioner that it's not fair or that it's too restrictive, that's ultimately probably better than not being restrictive enough. Mm. Just to make it clear for people who might be listening to this, so advertising includes uh, leaflets, uh, TV, website, social media, your Instagram, the hashtags you use, anywhere where you're promoting yourself, including this podcast. Absolutely. Where we try to you know avoid any of those um issues by not mentioning brand names that's all under those guidelines yes yeah so the definition of advertising is very 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 broad and it includes all of those things yeah it seems to me that you know there are some people who go oh no no my website's fine but i'm just gonna litter my instagram with all the naughty words because for whatever reason they think that's okay it's not it's definitely not and i think one thing we will very very likely see in the new guidelines is more attention paid to what you can and can't do on social media Mm -hmm. opera have already been doing that in the way that they've been applying the law 
because it's it's clear in the existing guidelines that social media is included. But as social media has been used more and more, it's just reinforcing, no, what you do on those platforms that are within your control are considered your advertising. Um, so I think we stopped at sort of gifts and inducements, but one of the other things that's quite relevant in that context is testimonials. You are not allowed to have testimonials and your advertising. So that's your website, that's your Facebook page, that's um, your people- Your Snapchat and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a testimonial is any sort of positive comment about your clinical skills or services. People can have testimonials about how easy it is to park at your practice um, or- <laughs> things like that, but anything about clinical skills. Again, the idea is that it potentially, that consumers are seen to need to be able to access information without being skewed by one patient's experience um, that you, because you obviously have the ability to curate those. You shouldn't also edit uh, testimonials. Um, And so even though you can have a testimonial about, you know, administrative issues such as parking, et cetera. Um, If there's a clinical skills comment in there, you shouldn't be editing that. So that's why it's just there are no testimonials. But people find loopholes. They'll do things like online forums. So you've got things like Real Self and Cosmetic Journey where people will have... Google reviews. Yeah, Google reviews where people will say, hey, look, go and check out this page. There's plenty of uh, reviews and testimonials about my work on there they can put their hands up when the regulator comes knocking and says, hey, look, I had nothing to do with this. This is a, a website that's outside of my control. Yep. I didn't know what this patient's written. So what I'm saying is that I understand the reason behind these laws, but people find a way. People yeah. find yep. a, a backdoor or a loophole, yep. a way to get things through. So it seems like we're trying to circumvent the inevitable, yep. which is people will find a way and people will set up websites overseas. People, and what makes it confusing is people can hop onto an American website at the click of a button and find out all the information that they want and then they go back to an Australian website and it's, and it's different. They can't find... So there's inconsistency because we live, in, we live in, a, in a global economy now where we can communicate with everyone around the world at the, at the push of a button. It sometimes makes it more confusing as well when you've got all these different laws, different different parts of the world. People are trying to... There might be a procedure overseas they're researching. They want to find out whether it's done here, but we can't... Do you, do you see what I'm getting yeah. at? It's and, and look, obviously, Australian regulators and legislators can only control of what course. happens in our country. Um, and yes, the internet means you can access information from other sites. Now, I would say if you're interested in a particular procedure that you're able to offer access information about on US websites or overseas websites, and you're interested in that procedure, you can absolutely read that information. But if you can't find any information about it locally, that to me would be an indication that you need to go and have a face-to-face conversation with someone. So being able to advertise or present information about that generally is not going to help consumers in that situation. Uh, To go back to your point about online forums, Google, for example, as a practitioner or a health service, I can't control what Google allows to be seen. And so the, the regulator's view is, so as a practitioner, I can't control that. The regulator's view is we don't consider that part of your advertising. It's real. You, it's real. So there's a mix of patients' opinions on yeah. there, some negative, some positive. Yeah. If they are all positive, um, arguably query whether or not that's genuine and the savvy consumer might be saying that's a bit interesting. Um, it's important to note that uh, certainly in the uh, AMA position statement on this. So again, just a suggestion, not a law, but um, in the AMA position statement and, and ARPRA's view also is that you shouldn't do this, is that you shouldn't 
solicit testimonials to be posted on third-party websites. So you should not be actively encouraging your patients to post reviews on Google or on Real Self or Cosmetic Journey or any of those other ones. Um, now, that may be entering into an arrangement with Real Self so that your patients are emailed and encouraging them to post a review, arguably that's actually not allowed because you're able to only then target <laughs> the patients that you're happy with. <clears throat> the benefit of something like Google is doctors and often doctors complain about this fact that you are beholden to Google's processes and them deciding whether or not that, that that's an appropriate review that should be left up there. Um, and if it breaches their terms and conditions, there's a process to have it taken down. If it's positive, um, you're unlikely to want to pursue those. If it's negative and um, uses really inappropriate language or otherwise breaches some of Google's terms, then there is a process to try and get that taken down. Hmm. Um, and that's something that you may want to speak to your insurer about or to speak to someone in your practice or have someone manage those sorts of things. Fair enough. Now, can we go back to uh, incentivization? Yep. Uh, what can you do? What can't you do? Yep. So that probably ties in quite nicely also in terms of the way that you advertise particular procedures and the sorts of things that you say certain treatments can do. Can do. Yeah. So not only is it about inducing someone to um, in, through a, like a gift or a discount, but it's also about saying a certain treatment can produce a certain outcome um, and up. So you can't make it really clear that that's going to happen if you have that. Injectables are going to do this. Injectables are going to do that. This procedure will make you look like this. Um, and you can't encourage uh, sort of unnecessary services. So again, it's the same thing, the way you promote something. If people think, oh, I'm going to go and have that procedure done because it'll make me look a certain way or it'll fix a certain thing, either physical or otherwise about me, then again, that's something that you can't do under the guidelines. Um, again, the best way of trying to understand those as they apply to your practice is going and having a look at the resources on the APRA website and just seeing some of the examples that they give. But it's a, it's about that over-promising. Um, so in some sort of specialties, it's about, you know, um, black salve will cure, cure cancer. Uh, you know, rub your body in this particular lotion and you will never get sunburnt or never, you know, it'll treat a particular skin condition. Yeah. Um, so those sorts of really positive, unequivocal statements that you have no scientific basis for yep. are absolutely the sort of thing they're really concerned about. But if, uh, I'm not going to name any devices or brand names, but let's say I say my magic machine uh, I don't know, it reduces your fat by, I don't know, 15%. It's very specific and I can produce a clinical paper that, you know, effectively proves that. Is that legal? Um, so if you can justify that that is the outcome that all patients who use that magic machine are going to achieve and it accounts for all variations um, – and you have the scientific support and you might even want to, if you're doing it in some advertising, link to it or refer specifically to it or quote it or whatever. So you'd have the and link it's to reputable. the paper somewhere so that, that yep. can be researched. Yeah, and it's reputable. Yes. Um, but it's very, very unlikely that a particular procedure would be able to be as equivocally, as unequivocally addressed as that and that would account for all patient differentiation. I, well, I guess that's the argument of... Uh any peer-reviewed journal it's like a small cohort of people of it's not, yep. is that necessarily representative of everyone in the whole world well of yep. course not it's impossible but that's how science is done isn't it with a, a clinical paper to prove a study something gets fda approved or tj approved and it comes on the market so where where do we stop and where do we start so what you might want to be talking about is something on a little bit 
um, less black and white terms. So uh, this particular machine can be used to treat X, Y and Z conditions, um, can be used if you are concerned about this. Okay. Um, So it's less... Specific. Specific. Yeah. Um, it's much less black and white and it accounts for different differences between patients, be it for age, ethnicity, yeah. um, other medical conditions, etc. Because unless you can 100% be confident that that outcome can be achieved with that machine for all literally 100% of people don't state it in your advertising. Gosh, Ooh, poor Rowan, we're absolutely grilling her. Yeah. <laughs> Handling it so I mean, well. <laughs> just, sorry, just to finish the point, you, you, would, you would probably say on average, not 15% for everyone, would you? That, that would I, be still pretty... don't, I still don't think that being that clear in terms of your percentage outcome and as statement as this will do that yes. is going to be necessarily in your best interest and less risky than making a general statement. So you might be talking about, hey, we've got this new machine and out of, you know, we've tried it on patients that have had these particular conditions or have been looking for this sort of, so conditions versus outcome, may treat versus, you know, will cure, like anything that talks about cure or anything along those lines is really risky. I know it's nothing to do with this topic, but I find it not entertaining. Entertaining is probably the wrong word. I find it confusing that um, cigarettes are still sold over the counter. We know that they do bad things to people, Mm. (laughs) like unequivocally. And, you know, there's warning signs on it. May kill you, may cause cancer, may cause you Mm. to... But that can still be sold over the counter. People buy them like they're Tic Tacs. Um, But there's all this regulation around like an anti-wrinkling treatment, which I don't think has actually ever killed anyone. Um, There's so much stringent law around that, yet things like alcohol and cigarettes, which we know can do a lot of damage to people, are just like, it's just normal. It's completely fine. (laughs) And I know you can't comment on that, but from a consumer, I'm just like, it doesn't make any sense to me. If there was really... If it was all about patient safety and protecting consumers, then shouldn't we be consistent across, like, everything that we allow people to do? And, yeah, and, I mean, you're right, it's probably not not to comment on... I'm just commenting, really. I'm not asking you to sort of... But but I'd say plain packaging and even the way that, the you know, plain packaging of cigarettes and the way that... um, that the labelling is on those cigarette packets. It's is not a not a bad analogy for the sorts of things that we're talking about. But the idea is, you know, as a practitioner, you've got so much knowledge. So you're reading statements in your advertising or reading information that you're putting out there in the public domain with a an amazing amount of knowledge that informs that and allows you to assess that in a particular way. The public don't have that knowledge. Um, And even if we're protecting, you know, sort of one end of the spectrum versus another, that's that's the motivation behind it. Yeah. Um, And and ultimately, however you feel about the law, you're required to comply with them. Yeah, and and you're going to end with that because I was going to (laughs) say that going back to this whole thing about not advertising brand names, on the one hand, we're saying, you know, Clients uh, have got a brain and and they should come in and have a consultation, of course. But at the same time, we're going to deliberately withhold that information until we entice them into the clinic before we give them that information. Mm. And yet, presumably, even a solicitor would say that the more types of information you can give, whether it's verbal, written, on your website, the more you can educate someone, the better. So I suppose the issue would be really trying to justify that you need to use named products to inform and educate someone and the TGA's version is that you don't and therefore that's that's what we work within Um, 
and 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 then looking at well then how else can we provide information to people and they've helpfully su- su- you know suggested ways of referring to particular things mm. and a list of acceptable terms yeah because it's come, become quite complex i mean it's not just a matter of um dermal filler i mean you could look at a dermal filler and there's like six variants of that filler within that particular range and they all do different things and got different different the tga's point different viscosities different sort of you know uh, longevity in the body so patients might be looking at say a before and after photo and going god that's a great result i really like what they did there but it'd be great to know exactly what products were used because that how do i find a doctor that specialized in that so it's like a double-edged sword, isn't it, really? It, 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 in some ways, it's impa- it's I understand that it's trying to protect people, but in some ways, it does make it a little bit more difficult. Mm. And and that brings up the issue of yeah. before and after photos. Yeah, please. Um, which, which we can – so those are specifically covered uh, in the guidelines uh, or in the – so the, they would be seen as part of that issue of how you are creating an unreasonable expectation of treatment. So before and after pictures need to be in, with similar backgrounds, similar settings, uh, quite clear. Obviously, consent is a whole separate conversation if you're going to use real patients um, and in terms of how you use them. And what you want to be doing is only using before and after photos um, to represent particular treatment. So if particular brands of a particular treatment are going to provide different outcomes, again, you make that really clear to pick up your example, David. So you'd be saying, and that's again, where actually what you put in your advertising in terms of before and after photos and what you actually specifically then talk to a patient about in detail are going to pick up on a lot of those things. Um, So as a doctor, would you be allowed to uh, I'm trying to work out, not, not to get around this and create loopholes, but to be as explicit and give as much information to the patient as possible while still being legal. So, for example, yes, you can't mention the brand name, but can you mention um, the brand? Uh, sorry, not the brand, the, the company that makes the brand. Or is that to, is that leading you to try and sort of be half explicit? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's really hard to understand. And this is why people slip up because they think they're doing the right thing and they do the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I mean, I suppose depending on what you're advertising, um, if using the brand name is basically going to be the same as advertising the particular scheduled because medication. Because you know who makes that product. And they only do one of the type of treatment. Yes. Then that's probably being a little too cute and clever. Yeah. And potentially going to bring you to the attention of the regulator. Yes. But if you're saying some examples of our previous patients who've had dermal fillers, here are some before and after photos. Okay. I, I would actually, my view would be that that's actually a much more effective way of advertising that because you're talking about the procedure. You're keeping in line with the TGA's requirements in terms yeah. of, you know, or you're talking about injectables in a particular area. That's a much better way of doing that than using the brand name because that's if if it particularly if it's something that you're going to want to talk to a patient in detail about which particular product is going to bring them mm. the outcome that they want that's better off covered in your patient consultation than in yeah. your general advertising mm. yeah i mean again this comes down to it's, it's not so black and white but a lot of people just are not very good with the camera and so you know you could flick through a thousand before and afters and some of them are completely unrepresentative of anything really because there's different expression different angle different lighting and you even see this in advertising material from companies you know claiming their new magic device you know you look at the before and afters and you're like it's like comparing apples and pears because mm-hmm. you don't 
they're not representative of a clear before and after. And yet, at what point is someone trying to maliciously play that and at other point it's just bad photography? Mm. You know, who's judging that? Uh, well, um, arguably the answer to that is opera are judging that if you're yeah. advertising a health service. And if those before and after photos haven't complied with the requirements mm. about before and after photos, then even if, if you're a bad photographer... Then you need to and, sort it out. <laughs> and you look at those two photos and you say, actually, those aren't... Those are not even comparable... Um, then don't put them in your advertising. Yeah. Um, if before and after photos are really important to you, do it properly yes. and engage someone to do that properly for you. And that, that's a matter for the practitioner yeah. as if that's something that they want to do. But I'm a bad photographer is not going to be an excuse <laughs> if you've <laughs> yes. breached the law. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, now, when we first started talking about you potentially coming onto the podcast, um, you were mentioning that there were some changes coming through potentially with ARPA guidelines. And I know they haven't come through yep. at this stage as you had expected, but um, are you comfortable speculating on what you think those changes may be um, or not? Uh, actually, I'm going to change that. What do you as a solicitor think would be sensible for the industry? It doesn't oh, matter. This will be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because I don't want it to lead you and put you in a difficult position, but what, okay, what I'm asking is what do people fall down on? What are the common complaints from those new guidelines perspectives and what would make your life easier? You just hijacked <laughs> my question, but anyway, yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I think what, what we certainly have seen from our doctors and practices over particularly, let's say the last five years is that even those who are aware of the guideline, aware of the law and then read the guidelines and then in addition, so during that time, APRA have tried to develop these advertising resources. There's a testimonial tool on there, there's examples, and they've tried to go into a bit more detail about uh, what, what you can and can't do to try and demystify that and explain that to practitioners as much as possible. So ideally the new guidelines would really enhance that and develop that a bit further. So social media has become much more popular since then as an advertising mechanism. So there may be some more information about what that really means, looking at the different platforms, clarifying that yes, your social media is part of your advertising and how you can do that appropriately. Mm. And, and the idea is that the difficulty in telling people what you can't do and that there are laws about what you can't do is often that's perceived as being told that you can't do anything. And the best way of looking at it is no one's saying that doctors and health services can't advertise. What they're saying is you're advertising to the public and you're advertising to prospective patients and we want you to do that safely. Mm. There needs to be some frameworks around it. So hopefully what we'll see is some a little bit more clarity and in information about what can and can't be done. So that might mean the guidelines are a bit more detailed, a bit longer. Um, and again, that regular updating of, so obviously the process of reviewing and updating the guidelines is quite a detailed one. Yeah. Um, and all the submissions, the, the draft guidelines were put out for public submission um, and all the submissions that different, uh, so event, put through some submissions, the AMA put through them through some submissions and other organisations have also done so. And a lot of that was also the common theme was really about trying to provide as much information without being prescriptive, but trying to provide as much information as possible. Mm. So as lawyers advising doctors about what they can and can't do, we can do so with a little bit of clarity. Um, and certainly those areas that have been maybe overlooked or were the guidelines were previously silent on, 
see whether we can maybe get some examples about that or see whether um, there's some flow charts, some questions that you might be able to ask yourself so that when you're looking at your advertising, because that's the obligation on the advertiser to do that themselves, to try and make that as clear as possible so you know, I can't do that. Yeah. And if in doubt, don't don't do it. Because yeah. I've, I've been in that vortex of read the guidelines and you read them and then I've even proactively spoken to people like yourself and you go around in this loophole of you say read the guidelines and then the guidelines aren't explicit so I go back to you and it's just it's round and round in circles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean look certainly from from our point of view if, if one of our members or practices comes to us and says this is the ad that I want to do, um, this is what what it, either actually here's a here's a draft of it or yeah. this is what I want to do or That's hey I, hey I want to put up a website or I want to put out some advertising and I want to use my Instagram page how can I do that safely what we would say is um, this is what the guidelines say the specific part of it that you want to do the guidelines are currently silent on yes. so let's look at the professional college that's relevant. Let's look at the AMA position statement. Let's look at any other sources that we've seen. Let's look at some decisions. Are there any advertising decisions from UPRA already that say you can't do that or you can do that? Yeah. Um, if at the end of that process, it's not clear, then our advice would be you run, this is the risk that you possibly run. Um, it's silent on it. So there's a risk that it may be captured by one of these two things or three things if there are some things so you ultimately then need to come to a decision about do I want to run that risk or yeah. am I happy to do that in a different way yes. um, sometimes it's about thinking about how you word things sometimes it's thinking about where you're putting something out sometimes it's thinking about things getting a patient to read it or a, a non-qualified professional to read it so that you look at something From through someone else's eyes yeah. and um but it's also agencies now. We had like a Drew Hankin on from the Azuri Group um, who owns an advertising agency who you referenced in the other podcast. There are advertising agencies now that, that specialize in this niche area of medicine um, who understand the laws. Um, and perhaps if you're not sure, maybe it's best to reach out and, and uh, you know, employ these companies to actually help you with your advertising because they know what you can and can't do. They know how to get messages across without breaking any laws. So maybe maybe that's a way to go is get, you know, get someone who, who does this all the time, who, who's across everything that can help you. And the other thing I'd say that is even if you do that, you are the person are that that holds holds the registr medical registration or is advertising the service and are running that company. So absolutely, yes, you can rely on someone's advice, but you still, if you are in dispute about that or what that says, or if you're still unsure, you, you are the one, you know, shouldering that risk. And so you really need to be confident that what you're putting out there is compliant. Can any um, insurance company, so if it's not a Vant, if you've got nurses that are ins insured through their own agencies, is this something that is fairly standard in insurance companies that they have this this resource for their members to understand what they can and can't do? So I, mean, I can't speak to exactly what all insurers yeah. would offer, um, but certainly um, advice about advertising um, through, call you? Through, through, <laughs> through events. Um, so our risk advisors and also in the medical legal advisory service, um, it's, you know, it's certainly something that we yeah. deal with. Um, you APRA make it very clear that they won't sign off on your advertising in the sense if you can't submit it to them and say, are you going to tell me that this is compliant? Mm. But that's why um, or that's one of the contexts in which some of the examples and the resources that are on their website, they encourage you to look at those those resources to, to look at your advertising in that context. No, we were talking off air, uh, I think, before this episode and 
anecdotally, a lot of these mechanisms to be reported to ARPRA tend to come from competitors rather than consumers. Do you agree with that? A, a lot of our members that contact us for assistance do say that. Now, you, you don't always know who has uh, made the complaint that um, if, if ARPRA have, you know, um, been looking at your advertising. Yeah. Uh, but if that's, if that's the case... You'd have to assume that they would because, I mean, ARPRA's a pretty – they've got limited resources. They don't have the bandwidth to just go and look at every single person's website. Yeah, so so during certain times they might be targeting particular yeah. specialties and they might be looking. But generally speaking, if they are contacting you about your advertising, it's been brought to their attention by someone else. Yeah. Um, and in the vast majority, in a, lot of, in a lot of cases, our members say, look, I think it's a competitor yeah. that has raised that. So do you feel, as maybe part of this regulatory change, that – you know, rather than frivolous reporting left, right and centre, that some accountability should be on the reporter to say, yeah, I'm making a, leg a legitimate claim to APRA and I'm quite happy to put my name on it. Do you think that would be a sensible uh, step? I think generally if you think that it's something worth raising with the regulator, there's no reason why that needs to be anonymous. Yes. I mean, obviously it's always up to the individual, um, but ultimately regardless of how something comes to their attention, if if the person who's got that advertising out there has breached the guidelines, the best way to avoid someone making a complaint is not, is not to breach the guideline or not to breach the law in the first place. Sure. There's a, there's a financial penalty that attaches to it, um, yeah. which is $5,000 for individuals, $10,000 for companies, and that's per breach. So it can get expensive real quick. <laughs> arguably, depending on how you interpret that or what you're doing, um, if, you know, if it's a social media issue, is per breach per post? it could get very expensive. How do you control that though? Because it's if you've got like an Instagram account, you know, you've got like tens of thousands of followers and you put up a product and people start mentioning drug names and, and sort of speculating, are you responsible for that if people are mentioning those drug names or not? Uh, no. no? Sorry, you, you answer, I'm not the expert here, but you know, you, you can't control what... Because I've heard you're responsible, but... Yeah. But if it's your Instagram page, you can take down those comments. Uh -huh. Ah, okay. <laughs> How interesting. So you are responsible. Jake's not sleeping for the next two weeks. He's <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just thinking, uh, <laughs> thinking of one or two examples of things that I've read, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I didn't think that person would be sort of responsible. But yeah, you're right. You can. So if it's within your control, so that's classic example is the difference between Google and Facebook and Instagram. You control that page you have the ability to moderate the page. Um, therefore, APRA expects that you will moderate it and maintain mm. it in accordance with the law. So switch comments off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we say, you know, if you're setting up a, a Facebook page for your practice, turn the reviews off because they're testimonials. Gosh. Because then that, but then you see that, that I mean, I, I get that's very sensible advice, but part of having social media and having posts and things like that is to make it interactive, is Absolutely. to get people engaging with, with a post or, and, yeah. and so unless you're like, you know, I was looking at someone's page today who had like 30,000 followers, I had like 150 comments within like a week yep. of something yep. going up. That's that could be pretty arduous to, to sort of uh, to police that. Yep. So there might be ways of being able to yeah. set some expectations. Again, I, I love talking about expectations, <laughs> but to set some expectations at the starting yeah. point. So saying, you know, whether or not it's in your initial information or when you yeah. launch the page or in your about section or wherever suits, depending on the platform, to say, here's the page, this is the purpose of it. Um, just so you know, doctors, health practitioners, health services are only allowed to advertise in certain ways. Can you please keep this in mind when you make comments? Yeah. 
Interesting. I'm trying to pull up some questions from. from well, I know that. Well, one of them is in relation to chain clinics um, advertising, say, lips to love for like, three, I think she said three thirty nine or something like that. Three hundred eighty nine. Three hundred eighty nine. So I think the question was, how do like clinics get away with that sort of advertising in terms of advertising something at a specific price? I think that was the question. Uh, I don't know. You got it, not me. <laughs> it's on the bottom of. <laughs> oh, it's on. It's on here. Yeah. I mean, are you allowed to advertise something at any price that you want? And I mean, so you are allowed to advertise price. Yes. Um, you need to be factual. Yes. So, if you are advertising that you can get this service for this price, that is a factual statement about that. And if it is correct then you can advertise it. I think, yeah. I think I wrote it down the bottom there, the name of the person that submitted that, that question. Uh, I am looking. It's right at the bottom. So basically, as long as you are saying, keeping it factual, that's it. You could charge yeah. $1 if you wanted to. If that's the price, that's the price, If right? that's the price, that's the price. From X amount might be a little bit uh, less clear. Yes. And that's where you might get into some difficulty. And also what's really clear is things like, using words like cheap or lowest price or for the low price of, that's or, a value or judgment. Time specials that's, or, and yeah. Again, so that's the sort of thing where we're talking about price or offers or inducements. Yeah. So price that is factual in your advertising is okay. Again, obviously, as long as it's correct. If you're using, if you're, it's not factual and you're using that as a way of getting people into your clinic yeah. to then say, oh, well, actually that was our advertised price, but that was only X, Y, and Z. And mm. actually the cost is Y, then that's where you might get into some problems. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that, yes, David, your question was by Amanda Witty. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Um, I think there was another one there too from someone else. Yeah. Another question. Um, PCC conference. So these are oh. cosmetic tattooists, oh, Nicole nice. and June. Uh, what's the stance on photos of work being stolen and used by a competitor? Um, so that's probably not so much advertising. That's probably, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose it depends on the situation in terms of how that's happening. Yes. If you're obviously, presumably if they're being taken by someone else, you must have put them out there either up on social media or otherwise in your advertising on your website. If you can prove that that's happened, then that's your property, intellectual property or otherwise, or actual property in terms of work product that you've put out there. If it's been used in in an inappropriate way or um, or you feel that it's being passed off as someone else's work, then that's something obviously that you may want to pursue. I guess the way around that that is to add like a watermark or something to the photo so people can't. Yeah, but not only that, but uh, that person using your photo doesn't have the photography consent from that patient either. Absolutely not. So there's another yeah. issue. And that's why your photography consent <coughs> needs to be really clear. Sometimes the way that you will become aware of that is by the patient or someone else saying to the practice, oh, I was looking at your website and I noticed this photo of myself or someone else. And then I also happened to notice it on X website. And that's sometimes how you become aware of that sort of issue. So that's not so much about your advertising. That's more about patient consent issues and Mm. your own sort of work product. Uh, Lots of questions about advertising, which hopefully we've covered. Um, My nurse friend... Adriana has a question and it was basically about financial consent. Um, I'm just going to try and pull up exactly how she worded it. So um, 
are we, I guess, as medical practitioners, uh, obliged to dis- disclose all possible costs up front? So let's say, I don't know, I'm going to offer you cheek fillers. That's a pretty broad term. Um, you know, and for the amount of product I'm going to offer you uh, to deliver X results, obviously I'll give you a price because you have to pay at the end of the day. But do you have to sort of cover all bases or, you know, it's kind of a, a loose question, but I understand what you're saying. Um, so you need to be specific enough so that the patient knows that in the process of, so yes, you are required to give them information about the cost of a procedure yes. um, and it needs to be specific enough so the patient knows what they are paying and what they are getting for that amount of money. Yeah. Um, so if you, so if you're providing cheek fillers and the cost of doing that based on how many treatments or how much product is is a specific amount of money, then then you need to talk to them about that specific amount of money. Yeah. If to be able to provide that treatment, there's an associated cost. Um, so not particularly in this context, but the most common situation that arises in for most of our doctors is surgeons who to perform their surgery, there needs to be anesthesia. And so as part of that financial consent, that discussion with the patient is the cost of my surgery is X. You will need to be anesthetized and there will be separate fees and He's, you might be able to provide them with some general information, but otherwise the anaesthetist will contact you and talk to you about that. Yeah. So that's a, a, a the most common example of the associated fee. Okay. Um, so certainly if you were providing information about the cost of cheek fillers to a patient based on an amount of product that was being used, but because you had recommended a particular treatment regime to them that was actually double that amount of product, Mm. then that would be seen to be not effective consent because you're saying X amount of product costs this this many dollars, um, but you would then need to follow that up with that's what normal, that's what most of our patients have. Um, but actually for you, I'd recommend a couple of extra treatments. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be a total of this amount of money. Yeah. So that's how that consent process would need to go. What about um, future potential costs? For example, if they come back and they're not happy or something isn't quite right or revision, revision, an, yeah. an yep. un- unanticipated need for further treatment. Yep. You know, yep. This so, is a common complaint, mm, I'm guessing, yeah. for you, David. Yeah. yeah. So you might be able to cover that in, in quite general terms. So you obviously, if it's something that's unanticipated, you can't be very specific at that point in time. But what you can say is, at the moment, we recommend that you have this many treatments or we recommend this for you and the cost of that. And you talk to them about that. If you needed some further treatment or a revision procedure, that would be additional to the cost that we've discussed now. And we would need to separately talk about that at the time. And the cost of that is going to depend on the outcome or going to depend on those sorts of things. And we can talk about that at the time. So that, that is the patient is well aware that the amount of money that they're paying today is not going to cover those other eventualities that you've mm. talked about. So that seems like common sense and it's something that yep. I'm presumably many or hopefully everyone talks about. But again, it comes back to matching common sense with expectation and people who just don't get it. Yep. And, and trying to cover all of, the, all of those bases on every individual that you see is probably where we slip up sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, the difficulty is lots of the things that we've talked about and lots of law is is a, a lot really grounded in common sense. A lot of it is quite, you know, quite sensible. Um, even if it wasn't legislated, it's actually just that the most sensible way of doing things. Mm. 
occasionally there's a law that confirms that that's the way you need to do it. Um, and the idea is if you put yourself in a patient's shoes, how would you feel about that process? Well, you'd obviously like to know that there's going to be an unanticipated cost. You'd actually like to know that there's some other options for treatment that we haven't talked about today. Like specific brands. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to let it go. <laughs> it's like a dog with a bone. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Gosh, well, we have absolutely grilled you. You've been, um, we've thrown everything at you and you haven't even broken a sweat. I don't even think, you're, it doesn't even look like your not pulse is raised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much. We could have gone off on multiple tangents, but we've tried to cover everything without getting too down the, the, the rabbit hole. Yeah, and it would be great to get you back at some point if we yeah. get additional questions that pop up. I guess once these advertising guidelines come through, we can maybe have a discussion and sort of break those down into yeah, English certainly. for people so they yep. know exactly what they can and can't do. But thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time and we really, really appreciate it and um, definitely learned a lot. I like to think I know everything, but uh, I walk away every week humbled <laughs> by someone like yourself. So thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. Just remind us how people get in touch with uh, you or Avant if they want to um, get more information or ask some questions or potentially look at a policy. How, how do yep. they do so that? So if you're a member or if you want to become a member, you can call our 1-800-128-268 number, speak to member services to get a quote, or if you're a member, speak to Medical Legal Advisory Service and we can give you some advice. Sure. Thank and you. your mobile number is not just... <laughs> <laughs> just for those listeners who are sort of particularly keen on prescribing questions and all those st things, I think we're going to wait until the regulations maybe evolve or, or there's a further sort of black and white stance on those and then we'll address them on a further podcast and oh was there a uh, web address for for um event event www.avant.org.au perfect thank, thank you, you so much thank enjoy you. the rest of your day care. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.